We're excited to keep going with our Lent series of giving up false beliefs for Lent. And today we are talking about Christian supremacy. Yes. <laughs> Very much linked to other supremacies uh, in our world that, uh, that are hot topic. And so I certainly think that before we're done today, we'll talk about white supremacy. We'll talk about national supremacy uh, and the ways that those kind of, you know, color a lot of life. Uh, but Christian supremacy is sometimes given a pass, I think, because of this one thing that Jesus said about uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so what we're wondering today is, is there another way to interpret Jesus's words there that doesn't give off kind of these negative vibes of like, I have to put myself above everyone else and exclude everybody else from eternity with God? Uh, is there another way to interpret that? Or is there, is, are, are we doomed to have to be supremacist if we're followers of Jesus? We don't think so. That's the spoiler. Um, but we should talk about that because it's pretty complicated, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say, too, when we were getting together to talk this all through, um, Vince sat down and said something. You're like, all right, so we're going to do Christian supremacy this week. It's like, taken out of context. <laughs> we're about to do it. Yes, yeah. That Let's do some Christian be... supremacy. All right. <laughs> um, but I think it's really easy for us to think of these blatant images and examples of yeah. Christian supremacy, yep. like a Jesus saves sign or a cross at an insurrection or protests that threaten the full humanity of people's identity that are backed with Jesus' name, lawmakers that cite Christianity as a reason to police other people's bodies and yep. cling to control. And so it's really easy to bring that to mind, but I think that also means that it's tempting to close the gap between us and those Christians. Those people over there, yeah. That we mm -hmm. become um, defined by what we're not, that we're not one of those Christians. But it's more fulfilling, I'd argue, to be defined by who we are. Mm. And even if we're not in line with these drastic examples of Christian supremacy that may come to mind, we're not off the hook for leaving our biases unchecked. Um, and like you were saying, it's impossible to untangle this thread of Christian supremacy with white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy. I was recently listening to a podcast episode where um, Joe Lumen was interviewed, and she is a speaker and author, a theologian, and she was talking about um, Christian hegemony okay. or hegemony. There's like 12 ways to pronounce that word. What does that word even mean? <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> so it's the way that Christian ideals um, really just seep into all other areas of life mm -hmm. and how uh, pervasive Christianity can be, even for those who aren't Christians. Okay. Um, that there are these perceived values and behaviors that seep into all of areas of life, especially in a Western context. Um, so it's not just that a belief system is held up as the ideal, it's actually that it becomes seen as the norm and other things that, um, other beliefs, other spiritualities are compared to this norm. And so it's misinterpretation of scripture and of tradition that keeps these power structures in place um, and keeps this going. And maybe all of this feels really obvious, but I think it does need to be named. Um, the other day I saw a tweet, this was from a couple of days ago, where Putin was misusing scripture in a war rally. Yeah. Um, the no greater love than this, than one would lay down their life um, from wow. the book of John was used to justify invasion because it would unify certain Eastern Orthodox churches. 
Um, so I think it's really important for us to start here by naming this because this isn't just theological. Yep. The ideology of Christian supremacy has embodied and lived out and even violent consequences. Yeah, it's behind what's happening in Ukraine right now. Right? It really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th I think of a, um, a really personal moment um, that, that uh, just ha comes to mind for me when we talk about Christian supremacy and how it's everywhere and how... In, in some ways, I, you know, I want to distance myself from it. I want to say like, oh, but you know, like I'm, people know that I'm a pastor and I want to say like, no, but not that kind of thing, but it's, it's impossible for me to avoid. Um, so when um, the, the year, 2016, uh, uh, the day after uh, Trump was elected, um, I remember I was dropping my son off um, at our daycare provider like any Wednesday after the Tuesday of the election. Um, but this day was different because I'd woken up and I, you know, I remember just feeling like disbelief and anxiety. Um, I felt a lot of shame because I'd, I'd been somebody who'd been, I was the classic like uh, white liberal who was telling a lot of my friends like, don't worry, there's no way he can be elected. And then it happened. And so I, I just felt all kinds of things. Um, and I'm going to drop off my son um, at our uh, care provider, her wonderful woman whose name is Mona, and um, and she become friends with us. And so we, you know, we usually like will exchange like, "Hey, how are you?" when I I drop uh, my son off. And this day, I sighed deeply and I said, "Today is heavy." And she, you know, sighs deeply back and and and. Um, and you know we we went along our way. I, I Mona and her family are Muslim, and so I kind of I I could I knew without asking how she might feel about Trump's rhetoric and policies, and so you know we said goodbye and we went about our our days. Uh, I went about my day and I came back to pick up my son at the end of the day, and Kezia, my wife, had beat me there, and so she's uh, she's already inside. And I come in and her and Mona are like crying together, and I was like, oh, like what uh, what happened? And, uh, and Mona says to us, uh, like, as she's, like, her and Kezia are, like, hugging and crying. She says, I'm so glad you said what you said this morning because I just didn't know. I just mm -hmm. didn't know. She kept saying, I mm -hmm. just didn't know. And that was, like, this moment of realizing, like, oh, I knew without asking how she might feel mm -hmm. about this. But she didn't know how I would feel without having to ask first. Because I'm in the position of power there. I, like, the Christian supremacy is what she experiences. And she knows I'm a pastor, right? So it's like, there's, it, like, nearly 80% of white evangelical men, I think, voted for Trump in 2016. Of course she would have to assume that I voted for Trump or, or, or not, you know, mm -hmm. or, or until, until proven otherwise. And, uh, and so I just, uh, this was a window to me for, like, the experience of Christian supremacy for somebody who's not a Christian. And, and it also solidified my own, like, feelings of, like, what do I do? Because I can't just detach myself from this. Like, I, I, I am a part of this world that experiences this. Um, how, do I, how do I go about my life? How do I go about the convictions that I have as somebody who has felt like I've experienced a God and that was mediated through my connection with Jesus? What do I do with that? Um, all of this kind of got, got riled up in that. Uh, but that discomfort, I think, is is what a lot of people experience. And I, I, think it, I think it describes a lot like what holds many of us back from diving in headfirst to an experience of faith, particularly an experience of faith that's mediated by Jesus, because we don't want to be seen as supremacist. And, uh, and you know, if we're, any, if we're somebody who, who actually can see that happening in other ways of life, it, it's sort of like, well, I'm just going to hold this at arm's length. And maybe you don't do it consciously, but unconsciously you're holding faith at arm's length because it's just, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. And I don't either, you know, so I understand that. Yeah. I, um, Willie Jennings is, uh, 
another speaker and theologian mm-hmm. and writer, and he describes um, white supremacy as atmospheric, mm. that it's, um, it's not just, it's the waters we swim in, but it's more than that because of how pervasive it is. And I think that this reminder of how pervasive um, this really like colonizing yeah. um, thread of Christianity is that it can't be ignored and that it's not just these individual instances, but it's a greater theme that needs to be named and dismantled and decolonized. Um, but are there, are there other ways that we experience this false belief beyond just the examples of a colonizing Christianity? Yeah, I, and I think that that's what you're getting at a little bit when you say um, this does go um, we, we need to get out of a world of like, this is just other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, part of my learning with this story with our, our, uh, our son's caregiver was, oh, okay, I can't just you know, be removed from those things that, uh, that uh, affect my life. But the other part is realizing like, oh, like maybe I do hold some beliefs that kind of feed this Christian supremacy. And um, another sort of personal, I think, realization for me um, was uh, years and years ago, um, before I was a pastor, um, I worked uh, at a um, I worked at a retirement facility, and so um, it was a huge. It's like one of the largest employers in the town that I grew up in in Evanston. So there's it's a massive, massive place. Lots of people work there, and I remember I you know at lunchtime you know you'd go into the cafeteria and you'd find the people that you start to know. I would gravitate toward the other people who were like in their early twenties because I was a young kid, and so uh, so we found each other and we started to uh, have lunch every week um, together, and um, we would. Uh, we would often, like, we just happened to be three people who uh, often would talk about things like spirituality or faith. The, the other two uh, friends who I would um, uh, sit with were not churchgoers, but they knew I was a churchgoer, and so we would talk about those things. And I remember another guy, um, you know, uh, also, like, young 20s, started working at this place, and, you know, you search and find, you know, the people in your demographic, so this guy comes and sits with the three of us, and uh, well, I'll call this guy Don, okay? And so Don joins us, and at one point in our conversation, um, Don says something like, like we're talking about spirituality, and he says, I just don't see the point of religion for people like us, he said. Hmm. And it was like implying like young people like, like us. It was clear that he's like, he, he obviously thought that we would agree. And I, rem- I remember feeling uncomfortable um, because I obviously was a person who, who saw some point in religion, even though as I, as I, was, I was sympathetic to some of the things he was saying. Um, but I, I remember, like, you know, I, I was with him in his frustration. But on the other hand, like, it was really uncomfortable to be in this situation where he said something that sounded so, like, you know, like people like us. Like, there was just some arrogance behind what was said. And I just remember being like, oh, no, like, is that, is, is that how I come off to people? And I think I, in that moment, I realized that is probably how I come off to people sometimes. And it was this really important like, realization that when we, when we talk about like, things as if it's, it's those people over there, it, yes, that like, kind of makes us feel like we're off the hook, but it also, we can say things that really cost us nothing. So when he said something like, you know, can you, you, know, like, can you just believe, like, religion is something for those people, but it's not like for people like us. It was the, there's the, behind that is like this, how backward are those people? And, uh, and, and it just, it, it felt like a really, it felt like something where he can preach to the choir all he wants, we can preach to the choir all we want, I can preach to the choir all I want to people who share my values or opinions, but, uh, and especially about like a colonizing Christianity. But I think the usual way that we feel driven to respond to that maybe doesn't 
solve the problem because we want to swing the pendulum to the other side and say, you know, like, okay, if we're, uh, if we're, um, if we're so against like this colonizing Christianity that uh, has all of this power and feels all supremacist and I don't want to look like that, uh, we settle for something that's like really cheap in response. And we just say something like, oh, you know, a Christian might say to a Buddhist, you say enlightenment and I say salvation, but it's all the same, right? And, or, you know, like a person from a Christian world might imply to a Muslim friend that, well, since we're both praying to a God that traces their roots back to the same tradition, we should just be able to get over our differences, right? It should be easy. And I think the problem with statements like that mm. is that even though it's progressives meaning to sound like open-minded and generous, in some ways it's actually as like Euro-American-centric as ever. Because when I say like, oh, we should just be able to get over our, our differences, or oh, you, you use this phrase, it's all just semantics. Enlightenment, salvation, it's all the same thing. What we're doing is we're still demanding that somebody else, this person, this human being that has traditions and stories that formed who they are, fit into my box. Mm -hmm. We're still like, that person is, is just an object. They're not actually a, they're not a subject that I can get to know or understand their, what's going on for them. They're just, like, when I say, like, oh, you and me and, and our differences, they're just, they're just trivial. All, what I'm doing is I'm making somebody who's a human being an object just so I can, like, get the monkey off my back to not feel supremacist. And I, like, I, th I think that it sounds really nice in my own world to say that, well, the, the Buddhist and the Christian, you know, it's all this kind of the same things. But I wonder how the Buddhist really feels if I say that, you know, like, well, they're really just the same things, right? I wonder if, like, well, I don't know, there's some real distinctions here that maybe are important to talk about, maybe important to dig into. And if, if my, if my uh, fear of being a supremacist leads me to, to decide that everything is the same, I'm not sure that gets me what I want either. Yeah, I think for me, this sounds like the religious version of I don't see color. Yes, um, yes, like, exactly. Oh, I don't see religion. I, and it's, this doesn't actually help the bigger problem. It's really well-intentioned, I yes. think. But it really is a sign of power and privilege. I mean, religious privilege in this case, where you can make assumptions about others' traditions and backgrounds and try to fit them into your perception of the norm. Right. I think making assumptions and reducing someone's really complex and nuanced experience to just the same as mine. Oh, it's yeah. just the same as mine. Yeah. Like that's a definite sign of power and privilege in this case. Right, because a Christian can say that because, like you said, the norm, the thing, the atmosphere is Christian. I don't have to apologize for celebrating Christmas, right? But can the person who is at a, at a, at a power disadvantage religiously in our, in our world, can they just go around and say, oh, it's all the same thing, you know? It's, yeah. a, it's a different experience uh, depending on where you come in. So yeah, it's, it does. It feels like... It, it feels like unhelpful responses to racism. Oh, I just don't see color. But racism will go away if I say that I don't see color. I think that Christian supremacy won't go away if we say, I don't see religion. Yeah. Right? right? And this, this clearly impacts our perception of others, but this impacts our perception of our own religion yes. and tradition. Well, right? yeah, and I, and I think that that's why, so like, you know, I'm here speaking in a church context, so at, like, at, at least to some degree, you know, we feel drawn to like attach ourselves to the tradition of Jesus. If you're, if you're at all connected to a church or you're curious about a church, you're wondering that, you're asking that question. And I think, so what's important there is like this this kind of, uh, this idea that, um, 
it's all just sort of the same. I don't see religion. I don't think it's just condescending. I think it also leads to a really half-hearted experience of our own anything that we might get out of spirituality because it sort of breeds the sense of if we're all seeking the same thing, why even care? Like may, maybe my coworker is right. You know, it's like, they, oh, who cares? It's all, it, it, it's all the same. And, uh, and so I, I think uh, a phrase I've heard to describe this is cheap pluralism. And so pluralism is like the idea that we, we have space for a pluralistic, uh, a plural, uh, like lots of different um, traditions or religious experiences that form us. And, uh, and we need to find a way to live in a pluralistic reality because that's the world we live in, right? Our neighbors across the street or our, uh, the people that we interact with uh, daily on the internet are all coming from different traditions. How can we, how can we receive that and love that? And, 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 and be uh, a force of, of connection in the world in the midst of that. But there is a, the cheap way to do it is to do this, I don't see religion. And, uh, and I think that, you know, like, we sh- like there, is this, there, is a, there is a serious problem of apathy if we go about pluralism in a cheap way. Because if we just see that everything's the same, then there's, no, there's nothing like pulling us to a tradition to attach ourselves to. And that's... That is a serious problem because we, like, if, if, uh, if it's uh, just up to us as individuals to make meaning for ourselves, to, like, help us figure out what to do when terrible things happen, when we experience grief or when we experience betrayal or when somebody we love dies or we're getting married or we're having children for the first time or we have a breakup or, like, what are the things that have allowed people to figure out what to do in those big transition points? It's bigger traditions. It's being taught by a mentor. It's somebody in your community who says, oh yeah, let me show you what we did when, when this happened to us. And what, if, if we're just left as individuals to come up with those things for ourselves because we're so resistant to attaching ourselves to broader traditions or institutions or organized religions, it's really, really hard when you're just a person on your own trying to figure those things out. And so we've got to find a way to absolutely throw off the supremacist attitudes, but we can't do that in a way that just says, yeah, but all these traditions are dumb because they're not getting us anywhere, because that's too much pressure on us as individuals. How, how, are, how are we going to do the hardest things of life if we can't turn to somebody and say, what did you do in this situation? Yeah. Uh, we, we've got to be able to thread that needle somehow, and I think that this cheap pluralism of I don't see religion doesn't serve us. It just it makes it harder for us as individuals. It's not just condescending. Yeah, absolutely. So, Haley, my question, as we have buried us all in gloom, and now it's our <laughs> job to present the solution, what is... What is an alternative to this? What is a way to give ourselves wholly to the Jesus tradition but not end up being a Christian supremacist? Yeah, I, um, there's a few things here that come up for me. I think the first is that decolonizing our Christianity is not optional. Um, and maybe that word decolonizing for you it might carry some different um, complex things or may not be super clear, but returning back to that podcast that I listened to with Joe Lumen, her definition of decolonizing is being able to look at the other and see divinity Hmm. fully and completely. Hmm. Uh And I think that's so beautiful, being able to look at the other and see divinity fully and completely. 
So this is an empowering and really beautiful invitation. Yes. And it doesn't cancel out um, our own desire to connect with a tradition, to connect with a community that does support what we're going through and maybe aligns in similar ways to help foster our spiritual lives, that we can be um, good neighbors yes. while still humanizing and seeing divinity in everyone and those that we would um, label as other from our own experience. And this, I think, returning back to last week with Erica's wording of Jesus humanizing everyone in the story, yeah. I think this brings it to life. Yes. That we don't just look at scripture when we do this, but we look at the world around us. We look at our um, our communities, and instead of trying to establish hierarchies or centering certain voices, um, instead of this leads us to try and like justify dominion over land and creation, like colonizing goes beyond just people, it extends to creation as well. Um, but it's this beautiful invitation to humanize everyone in the story, yeah. just like Jesus humanizes everyone in the story. Yes, yeah. One, um, another voice that we've been uh, using a lot, you've probably heard us mention, um, I don't know, in, in previous talks or something like that, um, is a, uh, the father of black liberation theology in America, James Cone. And one of the things that James Cone uh, often said um, and wanted, like, was a drumbeat for uh, uh, Cone's students uh, as, a, as, a, as a teacher, but also when he would speak to larger groups of people, not just like seminary students. Uh, Cone would say that um, uh, white religion, what many of us would be experience as like normative Christianity in America, is about speaking to the non-believer. And you're speaking to the non-believer and you're trying to make those non-believers believers. And what Cone argued is that uh, his his uh, conception of what uh, what what is faith it's speaking to the non-person and it's humanizing people and so what is the great message of Jesus what is the great message of Christianity according to Cone it is not making believers out of non-believers it's making human beings out of people who are dehumanized. Mm. And if that can be your drumbeat, if that can be the thing that you, the lens that you're taking when you read the scriptures and try to figure out, like, what does that mean for my life today? I think that's a very different, it, it can be something that you can attach yourself to wholly and feel like, oh, wow, like, I, I absolutely want to be a part of this. I am drawn to this. And when you live it out, Living that out, by definition, is anti-supremacist because you're trying to humanize everybody. You're not trying to be on top. Uh, and, I, and I love, like, I love when, when um, so something like that, that's coming from uh, a black man in America in the 60s and 70s is when uh, Cone first started to articulate that sort of theology. And that feels deeply connected to, um, some, uh, uh, we, we mentioned that Putin is misusing um, Eastern Orthodox traditions right now in his war and invasion of Ukraine. But the more, uh, the, the, the less popular, the less like in your face Eastern Orthodox traditions that would, have, um, that would have an ancient tradition behind them, that would have Jesus, I think, behind them, they often point to Jesus as the loser. And it's like, the reason to follow Jesus is not because Jesus is on top, supreme. The reason to follow Jesus is because Jesus is the holy loser. That the, 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 the incredible thing about Jesus is that when you are in a situation of losing, when you are in a situation of being on the underside, when you are in a situation of, of being hurt or betrayed or uh, frustrated or stuck or unsure how to move forward, you have the God of the universe as a companion. And I just love that, like, there's this long tradition of people on the Eastern Bloc 
theologizing about Jesus. And then there's James Cohn, a black man in America, right in the heart of white supremacy, and they say similar things about God. That's what I want to listen to, not something that is telling me that I need to be on top. Yeah. Although I'm not sure that holy loser makes a good like holy, mug or holy t-shirt. Loser. Yes, yeah, that's a holy loser. That's what I'm going to go for, yeah. yeah. What if? <laughs> Welcome to Brownline, holy yeah, losers. Holy losers, yeah, that's um, good. But I do think this, this stress on humanizing and humanity really ties into humility, that attaching yourself to a tradition or a faith community doesn't mean that you have to cement yourself in certainty. Yes, yes. You can worship from a place that is humble and that is still in a place of doubt, still in a place of confusion, of sorting things out and find meaning in that and humanize people that are coming to different conclusions about dwelling in the mystery of God. Yeah, I think what it allows us to do is we can, um, we can see, uh, like you were saying, finding the divine in every person. We can see the, um, when, uh, so previously I'm talking about this example of like uh, a Christian saying to a Buddhist, oh, you say enlightenment, I say salvation, the same things. What if what if, they, what if we can fully affirm that there is something powerful that the Christian idea of being saved brings? And we can fully affirm that there is something powerful in the Eastern idea of enlightenment, and they bring, and they bring actually different things that we equally need. And what if it's true that no one can come to Jesus' Father through Jesus uh, except through Jesus, and at the same time, that doesn't mean that only Christians are right with God in some eternal sense, right? Like, what if those, both of those things can be true at the same time, and it's just the way we've been taught to read things that make us think that, no, that must be impossible. Uh, I have to choose one or the other. I either have to be a Christian supremacist or I need to leave religion behind. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, I, I think so, the, uh, one, of the, one of the greatest living writers about uh, God is this 97-year-old guy, John Cobb, who is, um, he's, a, he's a theologian that has spent a lot of time connecting the Eastern traditions and the Western traditions, like Christianity and has spent a lot of time, uh, for example, in China and discussing interfaith dialogue in those settings. And, uh, and the, uh, Cobb is the person who I got this idea of cheap pluralism from. Uh, in, uh, in, in the 70s, Cobb started talking about something that's a deep pluralism as opposed to a cheap pluralism that doesn't cost you anything. Uh, and, and, uh, and Cobb's understanding of deep pluralism is distinction without disdain. Mm -hmm. Distinction without disdain. And I think that that is such a helpful phrasing to help me feel like, like, what am I shooting for? What is the version of being wholly invested in the Jesus tradition that I'm looking for? I'm looking to distinguish what is it that I'm getting out of this? What is it that just feels so important? What does it feel like a gift to the universe that I actually want to give my life to be a pastor and, you know, hopefully other people want to give their lives to this too, but also that doesn't lead to me pointing the finger at others and saying like, and therefore you are not in the club and you are not in the club and you are not, I disdain other choices. What does that look like? I, I think the idea is like, the human condition is that the moment we make distinctions, we, we feel like we have to disdain other options then. Mm -hmm. the, the, the only way to prove our point or to be solid in what we think or to be certain about what we think is to point at other things and tear them down. And I think that doesn't have to be our option. And uh, what, you know, we can see almost the whole of the Hebrew Bible or what the Christians call the Old Testament. We can see the whole of it being like a struggle with this. Can we, can the people of Israel like give exclusive, devoted love and worship to the God uh, that, they, that, they, that they feel caught up with and also love their neighbors? Mm -hmm. 
Can they do that? That's like sort of the whole story of the Hebrew Bible. And then Jesus picks that up. And, and what, if, what if we see that as like the great call? And that is the great struggle of all humanity. Can we fully give ourselves to a tradition so that we can not feel alone and just like an individual having to make meaning for ourselves, but at the same time, fully love our neighbor? Can we, can, I mean, like, I think that the, that, I think that the world wants to suggest that that is impossible, mm-hmm. that you can't have both of those. But I think like the paradox in that is actually the thing that grabs me. It, it's actually the thing that, that pulls me in. Like, I, I want to make this work. I want to be able to do both of those things. I don't want to just be an individual who has to make meaning for myself, but I also don't want to be a supremacist. So I'm going to hold to this as best I can. <laughs> I love a good both and. Yes, so this is both one of those and. situations yes. of you can, yeah. you can both worship and still love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. They're not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive, yes. Yeah. Um, but we are, we're trying with this practice in Lent of giving things up and taking on new, um, more helpful and humanizing beliefs that it's not just thinking yourself into a new way of living, yes. but living yourself into a new way of thinking. Yes. So I'm wondering, are there experiments that we could try this out with that would help us live ourselves into a new belief? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I, th- I would be fun to go back and forth here with a couple of experiments. So here's where we want you to take this all. Um, my first experiment, my first suggestion for living yourself into a new belief here is when you are uh, exercising curiosity about a different tradition from your own, so say you're hang- like talking with a neighbor who comes from a different tradition or a coworker who's from a different tradition, uh, the question I want you to ask yourself is, am I treating this person as an object or a subject? like we talked about before. Am I treating this person as an object or a subject? We, uh, if, in, in traditional understandings of, um, that, that, might, uh, that you might have experienced harm from, um, in traditional experience of evangelism, often the, the, the hard part about that, the thing that makes you feel terrible inside about that is because you're treating somebody as an object, right? Mm-hmm. They are an object that you are trying to form into something that you think is better. They're not a subject. They're not a human being with personal feelings and stories that contributed to who they are from whom you could learn. They are just something for you to mold. So obviously, in a lot of those situations yeah. that feel most toxic to us, that one is easy for like, oh yeah, okay, I'm treating them as an object. Let me move away from that. So if you have some of that in your past based on the religious experiences of your childhood or of your early adulthood or something like that that you're trying to move away from thoughtfully, this is a way for you to kind of think, okay, this person is a subject, not an object. They have a story. They have a tradition. That tradition may be just as beneficial for the world to know about as mine. And that doesn't downplay or, 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 or loosen the effect of mine at all. I can hold both of those at once. That's a really helpful one. But I think the other one that's a little bit harder is the ones that are a little bit more subtle. It's where we're engaging in that sort of cheap pluralism thing. Are we, are we treating somebody like an object? Are we trying to like learn from their story just to get the monkey off our back that we're not supremacist, right? That's, a, that's still treating somebody like an object. It's still being like, I really only want to get to know you because of how that makes me feel better about myself. That's not treating somebody as a subject, right? That's not genuine curiosity about another human being. That's still me fending off that cheap pluralism fight. And so, uh, so asking this question could really get us curious about what are our approaches when we're actually interacting with another human being? Are we genuinely trying to understand who they are, what they bring to the table, seeing the divine in them? That is the way that I live out, the, I think, the call that Jesus has given me. Hmm. 
I think it's really helpful, especially staying in a place of curiosity, that it's not just proximity to yeah. serve our own identity. Yes, it's, exactly. It's real and true curiosity. Yes, yeah. I, I really think that we need to come in um, fully believing that uh, no one comes to the fa- God, uh, Jesus' Father except through Jesus, and man, do other religions have something fully to treat me, or, or to, to teach me, to teach me. Like, that is so important that we can do both of those things at once. And uh, again, I, I think that the alternative is either we're a supremacist or we're out on our own and there's no, like, it, it's just up to us to put everything, to put all the pieces together. I don't think those serve us. Yeah. And they're mean to people because we treat people as objects. Yeah. It is. So I think that, ex- ideas? Yeah. yeah, the mm-hmm. experiment that comes to mind for me um, is looking into worship music or prayers and really kind of mm. staying in the space of distinction without disdain. Yes. Um, so examining the lyrics of the songs that you are singing or listening to, this kind of like our God set in opposition to other gods. Other gods. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, songs that have a really deep emphasis on victory, um, even as like, even going as far as God-ordained conquest, mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. use of con- conquerors mm-hmm. in music. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, I think, a really, uh, it can be almost like a simple invitation to be curious about the words that you're singing and praying. Yep. And is this worship actually bringing you into a deeper space of being able to love and to recognize the divinity in all people? Yep. That that's ideally what worship should be doing is from a really humble and human place, offering a space of encouragement and liberation. Yes. Um, that we should be more loving humans as we're worshiping with one another, or are the words that you're singing and praying actually maintaining some type of hierarchy and system of control? And I think that we actually, like, this is a, this is a, a way in which, like, the age of the internet is a wonderful time to be alive. There's lots of reasons that it is not a wonderful time to be alive. Don't get me wrong. But there are, like, it can sometimes feel like every prayer, written prayer or liturgy or uh, song that you might encounter in a Christian setting is just like so problematic. Do any of them mean anything to me? Like some people just like, uh, if you come from a tradition of church going where, um, where you maybe like read from a hymnal or pray from a book of common prayer, it can just feel like everything is problematic. Not everything, but it can feel like so much of it is problematic. And we live in a time when there are so many resources being written and so many voices, new voices being empowered that are coming from different traditions. A little bit of like what we talked about last week with new ways to interpret the Bible, mm-hmm. creative interpretations of prayers or of ancient words or of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. And they're out there and we can find them because the age of the internet, right? Like there's so many things out there. And so a lot of what we consider our jobs uh, like for this church is to to shine a light on resources that you may not hear about in, in other settings that actually have uh, written prayers, uh, that have songs, that have things that, you can, that can start to form how you live out faith in your everyday life, that, you know, like the, the lyrics that get stuck in your head or the prayers that you want to pray when you're in a moment and you don't sure, you're not sure you have words yourself, so it's like, what do I pray? There are resources out there, and, uh, and it, but, but it does involve sometimes rethinking or moving away from some of the things that we've inherited from previous traditions or tweaking them or coming at them with a fresh past, with fresh perspective. Yeah. And that can, feel, that can feel like a daunting task. 
I think one of the advantages, again, of trying to do this in community, trying not to just you know, default to that of like, oh, everything is the same, I'll just go and figure it out for myself and every person for themselves, is when we do this in community, we start to realize there's other people who are asking the same questions as us, and they can be guides to us, and we can be guides to them, so that we can find what are those new prayers and, and books and um, songs that we can go to. Yeah. Do you have um, any other experiments here that would be helpful? I, let's see. What are we out of time? It's like 11 or 5. Yeah, I, can, I think I can come up with uh, one more. Let's see. I, I like, okay, so... I wonder if this. I wonder if this helps anyone. Um, I wonder if I can encourage you, if you're in this place where you're really like, you're you're attached to this. I need to give up some level of Christian supremacy as a belief. I think what I'd want to encourage is, don't worry so much about whether to identify yourself as a Christian. Don't worry so much about that. Some that 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 that's a question that causes a lot of people angst. And I'm going to say, turn down the dial on that one. What I think you should worry about is whether to identify yourself as countercultural to the, the global religion of the market and money. Do you know what I mean by the global religion of the market and money? Like, when, when, we, are, when we are in this place where people who come from a more, um, uh, like, progressive standpoint want to swing the pendulum away from all of the powerful supremacist things like that Christianity has associated with it. What we want to do is say like, oh no, let's leave those behind and then every person will be will fend for themselves and it'll be fine and we'll just we'll 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 get rid of all of those stupid supremacist religious stuff. What happens there by default is there something does actually win the religious competition. It's just it's not a religion, it's money. And I think about this really important thing that Jesus said. Jesus almost always drew attention to nuance in situations whenever Jesus was asked a question. There's one instance where Jesus was very dualistic. And Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. It's almost like if Jesus was like anti any religion, Jesus was anti money. That was the religion he was anti. And I think that there's this reality of like, we just get lost in, 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 the, in, in all of the attention and all of the anxiety that's around the, am I a Christian or am I not a Christian? Do I, you know, like, do I consider myself religious or not religious? There's so much anxiety around that question for anybody who's trying to make meaning for their life and, and feels at all attached to Jesus. I just think, put that question on the back burner. What matters if we're actually trying to get something from Jesus is that we're not serving money. That's what matters, is that our religion is not money. Let's deal with you know, the tradition question and, and who you want to make your mentors and your teachers, let's deal with that. But first, let's just make sure that our religion is not money, because by default, that is what is going to win in the religious competition. And I, I just think America really drinks the Kool-Aid that, like, money's not a religion. Money is, like, free of values, and, you know, like, the, the, the invisible hand of the market will take care of everything, and if we, just, if we just let it be, we'll all be okay, and everyone will be taken care of, and the money will trickle down, and people who are in need will get jobs because those rich people will be so good and give them jobs, and, and I just think we have a, I, I think we've lived enough to just kind of see, like, I don't think that happens. Mm-hmm. I just... I just don't think so. I think if we leave money to just like do, do its thing by default, people don't get taken care of. 
it's, it's, it's the religion that takes over all. And that's why I think Jesus was so dualistic about it. If Jesus did not say anything anti-religious about, like, the Greek gods that dominated the, Greek, the Roman world that he was in. Jesus didn't say, like, guys, in 300 years, there's going to be this person, Muhammad, who shows up. Don't listen to him. Jesus didn't say anything like that. Jesus said, Don't, you can't serve God and money. And I, I think if we can make that the thing that we're really, like, oh, like, what, what, uh, what am I hitching my wagon to? If we can make that the thing that, dom- that like, dictates how we respond to that question, we're going to be much more in line with the tradition of Jesus in the first place than if we have to answer that, that really anxiety-provoking question of, am I religious? Am I Christian? I don't know. Put that one on the back burner. Just make sure that you're countercultural against the religion of money, I think is my experiment to mm-hmm. try. Just a simple little experiment. <laughs> yeah, just a little self-identification, you know, experiment to try. But it is a good reminder of sometimes it's not even, it's helpful to come to um, new conclusions and new beliefs, and sometimes it's even more helpful to come to new questions to be asked. Yes, and, and, and I guess that's in the spirit of, like, you, you have to live yourself into a new mm-hmm. belief. I, I don't think that we can just, like, turn this off, right? If it's atmospheric, that... We can't turn it off, yeah. so we have to try things, and just trying asking new questions, maybe that, maybe that moves things, maybe that shifts things. If we, if we ask that question intentionally over the course of a number of weeks, we start to realize it's changing us. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, I think we should pray. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Um, let me pray for us. God, we... We cannot serve both you and money. We recognize that. And we just, we just sit in that, um, that truth that you taught. And we sit in how that truth connects to the truths that other traditions might teach us. Not to say that they are the same thing, but just to honor how many, how many voices speak in concert about this reality that maybe the biggest question isn't, Am I Christian? Am I religious? Maybe the biggest question is, who is my master? (laughs) Who is my master? Is it money? Or is it something that's actually bigger than me? That actually has forgiveness and relationship at its core and not transactions and survival of the fittest. I just, I, I gather all of the stories that make up our community that cannot do this alone, that cannot make meaning for ourselves. We need to be attached to something bigger than ourselves. And money will not serve us. So I just, I pray that you would help us in this space, as we consider your words, Jesus, how might you draw us into something bigger that serves us, draw us into something kinder and more forgiving and more relational that serves us? How might you draw us into a tradition that sees the divine in others, but also sees the divine in our own experience and our own stories and traditions? Can you help us to thread that needle of actually having a real living experience of God and not becoming a supremacist? Can you help us thread that needle? Can you teach us what it looks like to do so? And if any of these experiments we're talking about might help us, 
give a, Lord, we, we ask for success. We ask for like some feedback. We ask for like, when we try it this week, when we ask ourselves, am I treating that person as an object or a subject? It really is generative for us. Or when we think to ourselves, am I, what, what, what is my master? Is my master money right now? It re- like it really opens up things for us. We don't feel ashamed, but we feel, we feel, we feel moved into something that is more forgiving and more loving. I pray that we'd have those experiences this week and we'd have those experiences next week and it would keep us coming back for more that we can slowly find our beliefs are changing. We no longer feel bogged down by this idea of Christian supremacy. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.